Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Dr. Sleep, Part 1, Abra. Let's start the show. Dan Torrance finds himself in Fraser, New Hampshire, where he gets a job doing maintenance at Teeny Town, a local attraction. He also finally admits he is an alcoholic and looks to get help. A young girl born with a call named Abra is born a few towns away. Like Dan, she exhibits supernatural powers. Years pass, and Dan works at a nursing home where he helps dying residents pass on, earning the nickname Dr. Sleep. He and Abra also share a connection of some sort. Meanwhile, the true knot, after feasting in New York City during 9-11, find themselves on the hunt for more sustenance. Jay, before we get too far into the themes of this section of the book, I just wanted to point out that the first chapter of this section with some slight edits and reworking would have been a brilliant standalone novella sequel to The Shining just by itself, where we sort of see the trauma that Dan Torrance has gone through and how he is exhibiting the alcoholism that his father had And at the end of it, he seeks help and realizes that he's an alcoholic. And it sort of ends powerfully that first chapter with him saying, I need help. And it could have ended right there as a sequel. And I would have been like, wow, that was a really strong novella that was included in one of King's short story collections that that served as sort of a epilogue to the, The Shining. And I would have been extremely happy. That's not to take away from any of the rest of the book, but I almost think like, Hey, you didn't need anything else. Like this, this is a good standalone. Yeah, we've got all this other stuff now, but like that—that that was a really powerful story. I've read plenty of characters deal with trauma and realize they're an alcoholic type of stories, but this one was particularly well done. I thought. I agree, and King could have even written it from a, a certain perspective where he doesn't even reveal the identity of the protagonist until, say, like the very end, mm. where where he goes to his first. Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and he stands up and he introduces himself and he says, Hi, everybody, I'm an alcoholic and my name is Dan T. And then we go, Oh, yeah. And then that's the last line of the story, right? That's not to take away from it. It was, it was really good stuff, but there, you know, there's obviously references to the true knot and, and Abra in that first chapter, but sort of that whole journey of Dan, both from the last section we read and then this section. I think that that would have been a a good standalone story and really sort of serves as the sequel. And I sort of think that all this other stuff that is happening now might be not superfluous necessarily, but like, okay, this is its own story now, but here's the actual sequel to The Shining. Yeah. If you wanted to know what happened to young Danny Torrance after The Shining, you don't need to read much further than that first part of the book. Now it's what happens to this Abra person that we're just getting to know. Yep. All right. So let's get into it. And this is something we talked a little bit about towards the end of The Shining, 
and it seems to come up again. And this is this idea of the difference between eternal life versus a good life. Mm. As we explore the true not, we learn that what they want is an eternal life of some sort, that they keep saying that we, we need to live to live. Basically, their whole reason for living is just to take more life so that they can live longer. Yep. And when we talked about this earlier, Jack Torrance was in a very similar position where it seemed like the Overlook wanted to keep him alive forever. And the ghosts that were haunting the Overlook were sort of living this eternal life. And so for the true not to keep saying like life was their only reason for living, it reminded me a lot of Jack Torrance and the Overlook. Yeah. For Jack, the idea of eternal life seemed really appealing. And it was one of the things we explored that set him and the other forces of evil in the Overlook apart from the forces for good. The characters who tended to be on the the good side of things weren't worried about extending their lives or just living forever. They were more worried about having a good life, living a good life, being good people, helping those around them. That was what was important. And it really made it seem all the more selfish of the evil forces that they wanted this eternity. Like, ah, I'll take it however I can get it. At any cost, I will sacrifice anything as long as I get to keep living. And that's basically the philosophy of the members of the True Knot. Mm -hmm. They will kill other people so that they can have more life. And that's all that's important to them. And they talk about the regular folks as rubes. Yep. Because they're just not sophisticated enough to know any better. And so they're basically just a food source. Who cares anyway? And their their mantra. So they have this like little ceremony where they inhale the steam from one of the bottles that uh, Rose the Hat has left. And during that mantra, they say, they are the makers. We are the takers. Like not even any, no subtlety there at all, right? Like mm-hmm. we're just going to take, take, take. And you and I both had sort of a thought about this, that this is almost like King critiquing capitalism in some way, right? Like, yeah, we're just going to take, 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 like they're, they're adding nothing to, to anything and they're just taking. And we really noticed this when we contrasted it with what's happening in Frasier between Dan and the townspeople there. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan comes to this town with nothing but the shirt on his back, basically in a duffel bag worth of stuff. And he immediately finds somebody who's like, Hey, I can give you a job. And then that person's boss is like, Oh yeah, I can find some place where you can get a room. And the person who's putting putting him up in a room is like, oh yeah, we'd love to have you here. And how can I help you? Can I get you a meal? Everyone wants to help out. Dan's boss even realizes like, I think you're an alcoholic. I'm going to help you get into AA. And all this stuff is like this whole community coming together. And then we see that Dan Torrance himself, he has a job as an orderly at the assisted living home, but then he sort of volunteers to help people die. And part of that is this really touching scene with one of the old men who's dying. And this man sort of rec- recollects on the good parts of his life and how great it was. And and Dan helps him sort of pass on, right? Yeah. He moves on from this, the memories of his great life into whatever the unknown is. And that's sort of contrasted with the true knot who has these really violent deaths. And when they pass people on, it's just so that they can suck up their essence and 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 live forever. And so all this together is just I think it's a really well done contrast between what's happening in, with Dan and Frazier and what's happening with the True Knot. And I think we should also point out the fact that 
the way that the true knot ends people's lives for their own gratification is, as you say, very violent. So it's the worst way to die. Mm. And the way that Dan helps people move on is maybe the best, kindest, gentlest way for somebody to die. And the way that Dan does it makes it much less likely that they would become ghosts, that they would become, say, caught in the in-between spaces, and that they would go whatever, go to whatever is next. And I think somebody like Dan, or maybe Dan especially, would appreciate that because he knows what it's like to be haunted by ghosts, to be haunted by, I guess, creatures, characters, entities, spirits that haven't been able to move on from where they died a violent death. Mm-hmm. And whether it was the, the powers of the overlook sort of accumulating and, and holding on to these spirits or them following him around like Mrs. Massey just didn't matter that the overlook burned down. It didn't matter that he moved to Florida. She still kept showing up in his bathroom. Yep. So he needed to use some of his own shining powers to lock her away and, and keep her away. But that wasn't Mrs. Massey's fault. It was just maybe the way that she died. She committed suicide at the end of a terrible life of doing weird things. I don't know. But if she had maybe had somebody like adult Dan to help her pass on and remember the best moments of her life, I bet she would never have become a ghost in the Overlook. Yeah. And Dan doesn't know what's happening next, right? Like He's Mm -hmm. just like, "I, I don't know. But I will help you get wherever that needs to be. Yeah. And it'll be peaceful and it'll be nonviolent. It'll be like you're going to sleep, which is why he gets the nickname Dr. Sleep. So we, we sort of played off on this whole idea is like, is this a critique of capitalism? Is is volunteerism the way to be and, and helping people and all coming together as a community as opposed to being a taker and just living off of the effort of other people and 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 stealing things and because they're living forever, they've got all these, their own town, like company towns that they own, right? Where mm-hmm. they're, the, the, the whole true knot is just a giant pyramid scheme of sorts. It almost seems like. I guess I kind of dug some of the ideas of that, like that somehow just having an extended life, if not an eternal one, almost automatically meant that you would become insanely wealthy. Well, yeah. I mean, you and I both are fans of Highlander. That's the whole premise of that, right? That's how he's able to have all his stuff is because he fakes his death, but his the wealth that he accumulated from mm-hmm. the previous life he lives, you know? Yeah, like eventually Russell, Russell Nash inherits the stuff from the guy before, and, you know, he has all that swanky stuff in, in a New York apartment. It's, it's the joy of uh, compounding interest, right? Like, if you're investing money in the early 1800s or whatever, it, it turns out that by the time you get to the late 20th century, you're a fairly rich man. And the same thing is true of Anne Rice's vampires. Yep. They're just, you know, bequeathed a bit of treasure when they become a vampire. And the next thing you know, it's 300 years later and the world is their oyster. Yep. And by oyster, I mean dead people. (laughs) Lots and lots of dead people. (laughs) Something else we should talk about is the direct reference to Poe and the line, a dream within a dream. I really like how King is expanding upon the variations of in detail about the shining powers. Yes. We kind of already knew that, you know, uh, Halloran and Halloran's grandmother had the shining, and then we knew that Danny has the shining, but we hadn't met really anybody else 
or not in depth, right? Like yeah. Halloran meets somebody along the way up to the Overlook who has a little bit of the shine. Oh yeah, the snowplow guy and-, and and Dan occasionally meets people who have like just a slight bit of it. But like there's these like little just tiny pieces. Mm-hmm. But now we're meeting characters who have expanded powers, right? So in the last section we met the woman who can make people fall asleep. Right. And so now we also see Dan has this power of this doctor sleep thing to move people on, but then Abra seems to have a whole bunch of different powers. I I thought that the the woman who could make people go to sleep was going to be the titular Dr. Sleep. Mm. I had that wrong. King pulled a fast one on you. Yeah. Almost threw the book away. I was so just annoyed by that. Let's switcheroo. So Abra, we find out, has has some telekinesis power. She makes these spoons and forks stand up during the, the show. Uh, mm-hmm. She has precognitive power. She was able to realize that 9-11 was going to happen prior to it happening when when she was a newborn yeah when she was a newborn and try to communicate that to her parents through some images but you know obviously they didn't understand what that meant and then most interesting especially when you consider who plays dan torrance in the in the movie abra is able to force call with dan obi-wan in this case you know across distances she's able to communicate him first through a chalkboard right like she's able to to write on this chalkboard that Dan has in his office, or not mm-hmm. his office, his living space at the old age home. Yeah, it's really cool how we're getting to meet more people with these powers and getting to see just different ways or maybe flavors or specialties of what The Shining can be or how it can manifest in a person. King doesn't take it too far. It it doesn't start to turn into like uh, an issue of the X-Men. <laughs> not quite. It's kind of like everybody has the same superpower. It's just that some are stronger than others, and that strength allows them to be more capable of manipulating those around them. Whether it's you know kind of listening to their thoughts or suggesting that they do a thing, it just gives them all uh, a little bit more of an advantage than the average person. And it seems like members of the True Not have some powers too. Like they have some sense when disasters are coming. Although they need to be fairly, they don't know the exactly 9-11 is going to happen, but they have a sense that there's going to be a loss of life in New York City. Mm-hmm. And they, they get close to it on the day that it happens. And that's when they, as it gets closer, they know the most. And they use that. But then also, some of the characters seem to have like almost radar. Like that's how they're able to find that baseball boy that they kidnap and and murder mm-hmm. to get his power because they're able to like triangulate because a few of them have this power to like oh yeah he's over here he's over here and we can hone in on him so there's that the most intriguing one that i i liked was dan's and and why we called the section a dream within the dream is dan has these double dreams right oh yeah the first dream where he realizes that he's in a dream and then the second one that's still part of the dream that he's recollecting the first one. That's when he wakes up. And so there's these, this double dream that he realizes has some sort of precognitive power. And then that gets to that Poe quote, all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I get the impression that all of the members of the True Knot have the shining and maybe it, it transforms a bit when they are converted uh, into the, uh, I guess, ever-living versions of themselves. But when they first recruit the woman who can make people go to sleep, she is just a regular person who has the shining. Yep. And then 
she's converted and now she is somebody who needs to ingest steam to stay young and and live forever right so that's why they all have these various powers it's why they can do a lot of the things that dan can do or that abra can do is that they basically are all people who have or maybe it's not fair to call it the shining anymore once they are members of the true knot but they couldn't have become members of the true knot if they didn't already have the shining in their original lives i I think i think there's sort of a dual purpose right they need to one have the shining in such a way that that power will be useful to the true knot Mm -hmm. so when they're observing that woman they they're saying like oh that's a neat uh, talent to have being able to make people fall asleep but the fact that she also has maybe sketchy morals mm-hmm. is why they recruit her because if she was an innocent person and not willing to use those powers sort of chaotically then they would have just killed her and used her life essence instead yep which is why that baseball boy who has a little bit of it they're like nah this guy's not going to be good to be a he's a good all american boy we'll have no part of him He'll still be a rubid heart, so we're just going to murder him and kill him. I also thought it was sort of interesting how I think this is what happened. The reason why the September 11th tragedy was something that they were drawn to and could feed from was that statistically, there are just so many people in the greater New York City area that a whole bunch of them were going to have the shining of some level. So this terrible time when people are injured or killed, and 10% of them or something like that have The Shining, then that steam just comes out like a giant cloud over the city, and they can drink it in for days. And so while we're horrified by this moment in, in history, they're like, this is the biggest buffet to come along since, I don't know, the, the Mexican-American War or right. something. So two things. One, they're killed violently, which seems to have maybe a purity to the steam that's different. It makes it taste better. It tastes better, exactly. And then also, if you only have a little bit of The Shining, it's probably not worth the risk to find that person and kill them because that could draw attention to themselves. Mm-hmm. But when they're dying as a result of something else, then it's worth it. You know, like if you only have, hey, I can sense when someone's going to get an ice cream headache, like that's not enough to be like, all right, let's figure out a way of killing this guy. But that might bring attention to us. Because one thing that the True Knot is very concerned about is not bringing attention to themselves unnecessarily. Mm. They're sort of like the low men in that way, aren't they? Yeah, they want to stay dim. All right. Well, we've pointed out maybe a couple of them, but there were quite a few connections to The Shining in this section, were there not, Jay? Yeah, there were. Let me start off with one that I thought was great. Dan is interviewing for this job as to become a maintenance man. And he realizes like, you know, at one point, Jack, my father must have had a very similar interview to get the job at the Overlook, you know, a guy at the end of his rope, sort of down on his luck, very few references, but he has to present himself in a, in a manner to, to somebody who maybe he doesn't respect just so he could get a shitty job. When Dan's in the interview and he's talking to this his new boss, he calls him an officious prick, which there's absolutely no way of knowing that Jack had the exact same thought, but it, it, it's just a beautiful connection. Mm-hmm. Although the one way that I could headcanon explain it is that little Danny Torrance does have the shining and 
knows a lot of words that are floating through his parents' minds like divorce and suicide, perhaps even a vicious prick. The other change is that while Jack really hated Omen, Dan's boss becomes a sponsor. Mm-hmm. And friend. And friend. So he is no longer the officious prick. No, he's just officious. <laughs> There's this really interesting thing that seems to be just a little hint at something now, but Abra is cupping her hand and over her mouth and wiping at her mouth in a very similar way that Jack Torrance would do whenever he was craving a drink or when he was drunk. Mm. So that became like his dry drunk mannerism of just like, oh, I got to wipe my mouth, got to wipe my mouth. He even gave himself like blisters and things because he did it so much. Right. And now this little girl is already doing this. It's almost like, I don't know, like is King associating this ability to have this very strong shining with some sort of alcoholism tendency? Like she's probably never had a sip of alcohol at this age. Right. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't have like some sort of predisposition to, or maybe like Danny, find that she needs to sort of dull the yeah, dull the dull the sensations uh that that her powers give her. Could be. Because she is much more powerful than Danny from what we can see. And like Danny, she was born with a call which we're, we're told early on, they both share that in common, which we have said is a uh, superstition that, that those born under a call um, have some sort of power. So, Which is a nice callback to The Shining, if you will. Oh, oh, that's rough. Speaking of callbacks, King goes, this, this is a little bit of a stretch as a Shining connection because I'm not sure if it was intentional. But if you remember in The Shining, we get this sort of info dump when Wendy and Jack take Danny to the doctor when they're concerned about him. And mm-hmm. the doctor tells us all these things about psychic powers and how he sort of believes in them. And Danny might not grow it, but blah, 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 blah. Well, we get another info dump in the form of parents talking to a do- doctor about a superpower kid who's not present. In this case, it's the father and his mother-in-law who go to the doctor to talk about Abra and explain all these things that Abra is able to do and then ask the doctor to come witness it for himself at at her birthday party. But I thought, boy, this is interesting that King's using the same narrative trick here. Mm -hmm. Not to be too nitpicky, but it's his great grandmother-in-law? Correct. It's not the mother-in-law. It's his grandmother-in-law. Grandmother-in-law, right? Yes. Just so we don't get inundated with emails from our listeners. Yes. But yeah, I love how this is, it's not a necessarily a connection story-wise or content-wise, but just a, a construction-wise that it's just King uses this, let's talk to a doctor as a way to convey a ton of information. And then in both instances, doesn't really uh, acknowledge the fact that shouldn't the patient be present at least? <laughs> right. All you're doing is talking about her. And again, in both instances where the patient would be a you know five-year-old kid, so do they understand? Do they need to be in the room? I don't know. I just love that there's doctors who can sit around and spend a half an hour talking about a patient without the patient being there when I could sit in front of my doctor and she's trying to rush me out after five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. Dan's lowest moment was when he met Dini and then stole money from her and left her behind with her kid. And that is 
what like haunts him every day. Like he he's I don't think he's ever stopped thinking about her. And there is a moment when he has a, a vision that Deanie is dead and that she killed herself by taking pills and letting herself fall asleep in a full bathtub. And that's just like The Shining in that Lewis Toner, the man in the dog costume, and whose name we learn in Before the Play, that uh, that's exactly how he died. That's right. So a little bit of a convoluted thing. You have to also have read Before the Play to, to know that detail about the man in the dog costume. But you can learn more about that if you listen to our bonus episode about Before the Play. That's absolutely correct. Another shining connection is I would call more sins of the father. And that's where we kind of get confirmation that Dan Torrance is just as angry and just as prone to rage and violence as Jack Torrance. It's just that he seems to be maybe a nicer person in general. Mm. He is often doing everything in his power to hold back that rage. And there is a moment when it's really justified for him to be as angry as he is because there is this very insensitive other orderly named Carling who has no patience with and often hurts uh, some of the patients. And Dan is just hoping at one point that Carling, you know, makes a move or something because he wants to beat the crap out of him. Anyway, that this is just an instance where Dan manages to rise above it now because he has the support system he has he's been sober for so long he has the friends and the community and the job that he has it's just not worth it but we're like that part of the audience that uh, we know what dan is capable of that yep he might not even win that fight but the other guy's gonna pay really really dearly by the end of it and in this particular case we're almost rooting for it to happen because this guy is such a you know piece of crap. Yep, the only real bad guy we've seen in the town of Fraser so far. Yeah, and he mostly is just like ambivalent. Like he just doesn't really care. Yeah, you know he's not outright evil. Okay, well let's see if there are any dark tower thinnies. Jay, I'll start with. I have two thinnies that are actually about thinnies. What? What? <laughs> I know this is crazy, right? So we mentioned it earlier that Dan is talking to a resident named Charlie Hayes. Charlie Hayes is the man who is about to die. And one of the reasons they know he's about to die is because the cat, Azrael, shows up, right? Mm -hmm. Danny comes and he has this long talk with Charlie Hayes as he helps him over. And they say, Charlie Hayes has come to the border. And it's this border between life and death, which could also be a thinny between one stage of life and the other stage, which is beyond life. And so I thought that him calling it a border was very reminiscent of being a thinny. I can dig it. And then later on, not even later on, this is right when Dan gets to the town of Fraser, and you know he notices that there's this place called Teeny Town there. And just as he's walking around this place, he's, he notes that it may be a special place, much like the Overlook was a special place. And that we posited that the Overlook may have been a thinny, and that's one of the reasons it's considered special and maybe mm. drew these entities to it. Fraser might seem to be another one that's like that, and maybe that explains why Dan sort of randomly ended up here. 
and also why there's things like the cat and people who are willing to help him. So um, maybe Frasier itself is a thinny. I like that one too. Even if it's sort of more of a benevolent place as opposed to malevolent that the Overlook is. And yeah. Many of the thinnies that we've encountered in the past have been dangerous because of you know, what's on the other side of them. Right. This one seems to just be, if Frasier is a thinny, it seems to be a doorway to someplace better, maybe, or more peaceful. Yeah. But it's still a doorway. Do you have any Dark Tower thinny? I have a couple. One of them is uh, one of my favorite topics, the number 19. <laughs> 19. Somebody says, if you make a plan 19 times out of 20, things will turn out fine. Mm. I know that it's like just like one less than the total here, but who says 19 out of 20 times? Yeah, most people say four out of five or 99 times out of 100. Yeah. 19 out of 20 is a weird one. Yep. But there it is. You brought up Teeny Town. And uh, I'm getting some serious Charlie the Choo Choo vibes, not to mention Blaine, mm. with the the Helen Rivington miniature train and the miniature town that this, it's presented as this wonderful thing. It's this model of the town and just a shrunken size and everything's to scale. And the Helen Rivington train works and people can board it and ride around on the track and as... Dan becomes more comfortable and people trust him more in the town. They let him actually pilot the train or yep. would it be engineer, engineer the train? No, that doesn't drive, sound. drive, the drive train? the train. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, he, he makes the train go. <laughs> choo, choo. <laughs> choo, choo. And, uh, but it's also ominous. I don't know why it, it, it's, there's a, um, I guess I'm helped with that perception because Abra has a dream where she sees the train filled with ghosts. Mm -hmm. That could be why. <laughs> it... But in addition to that, it just feels like it's too happy. It's it's like the the opening scenes of um of a horror film where you see the the playground and nobody's there, but it's just a playground. It's a swing <laughs> set, and for some reason, I get creeped out. One swing, slightly moving yeah, in the breeze. The little squeak. The roundabout, going slowly in a circle with a, a squeak every now and then. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I get it. The little bouncy toy just shaking back and forth. Right. So anyway, the fact that we've got a tiny train that is sort of sized for kids fun, that sounds like Charlie the Choo Choo. And then... Yeah, put some ghosts riding around on it at night that only people with The Shining can see. I don't know. Is this now the the train to the afterlife? Like We shall see. We shall see. Yeah, now that we're thoroughly creeped out, how about some yucking it up? You and I called out the same thing, so why don't you uh why don't you do that, Sean? Yeah, this is Dan seeing a image of the diapered boy that he left behind this is sometime after the right side of his skull was caved in bone splinters protruded through blood-stained fair hair gray scaly muck brains was drying on one cheek and if that's not you know sort of yucky enough throughout all this the young boy tommy was still alive which is just uh terrible yeah i don't know if that's more yucky than sad 
or more sad than yucky, but it's definitely gross. Yeah. The image is yucky. And then it's sad to learn that Tommy was alive. And although he's dead now, Dan thinks that it was probably what a a brother-in-law or stepfather or something, uncle that did this to him. And Mm -hmm. just one more thing that haunts Dan after he left Deanie and Tommy behind. All right, well, let's move on to something more cheery, and that's our patrons who support our show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, including the aforementioned Before the Play prologue to The Shining. You can visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Sean, is it time for fun stuff? You know it. All right. Mind if I kick us off? Go for it. I'll start us off with... A Weird Al reference. (laughs) So there's a moment when Dan is reflecting on how bad he still feels about about Deanie. And and he just kind of rattles off this whole thing to to Deanie in his imagination. Sorry, Deanie, you lose. But nobody leaves empty-handed. What have we got for her, Johnny? Well, Bob, Deanie didn't win any money, but she's leaving with our new home game, several grams of cocaine, and a great big wad of food stamps. <laughs> Which, of course, makes me think of Weird Al's I Lost on Jeopardy. That's right, Al. You lost. And let me tell you what you didn't win. A 20-volume set of the Encyclopedia International, a case of turtle wax, and a year's supply of rice the San Francisco treat. But that's not all. You also made yourself look like a jerk in front of millions of people. And you brought shame and disgrace on your family name for generations to come. You don't get to come back tomorrow. You don't even get a lousy copy of our home game. You're a complete loser. The great Don Pardo. That's right. I love this quote, which I'm guessing is not original King, but if he popularized it, that's great. When you were running with the bottom dogs, what you mostly saw were paws, claws, and assholes. It's a good one. Conjures an image. It certainly does. The next thing I wanted to mention in fun stuff is Dan's rented room is so very much like Ben Mears rented room in Salem's Lot. There's a line, Mrs. Robertson's was a rambling old colonial. And Dan's third floor room had a view of the mountains to the west. Mm. It doesn't lead to the same things, but the fact that this guy of a certain age comes to town and just rents one room in a boarding house, basically, it's like the stories sort of start out the same way. There's almost something romantic about the idea of just like renting a room and trying to fit in. I don't know how much that happens anymore. Yeah. It seems to have it a lot in novels, but not so much in real life. You don't hear about people just renting a room mm. in a boarding house anymore. Maybe that's why it seems romantic. Because yeah, that it's could just be. not realistic. Yeah. I learned a new word in reading, and that is wittershins. Mm. Were you aware of this word, wittershins? I was not. I had to look that up myself. Yeah. And so the official. Definition is, in a direction contrary to the sun's course, considered as unlucky, counterclockwise. This comes up when Dan is thinking of going back to the bottle. Mm. He has bought a bottle at the convenience store. After denying himself earlier, finally, there's too many visions that have run him ragged, and he goes and buys a bottle, but he hasn't taken that drink yet. He's just sitting there with a bottle, and he's opening and closing the bottle cap, and he's turning it Wittershins when he is found and then 
he finally gets taken and realizes he asked for help and goes to AA. But Wittershins, great word. Yeah. It sounds Irish. It does, doesn't it? I never thought I would encounter a Smurfs reference in a King novel. <laughs> when we learn about the cat who predicts the impending death of the patients at the old folks' home, and uh, the cat's name is Azrael. It's mm. spelled a little bit differently than in the Smurfs, but there were two antagonists to the Smurfs. One was Gargamel and his sometimes loyal cat, <laughs> Azrael, and they both wanted to eat the Smurfs. You got no, no response to that? I'm, I'm biting my tongue to not make a Smurfs joke that I know. Okay. And I'll just roll into my next fun stuff. And not only did we get a Smurfs reference, we also got a Happy Days reference. What? I mean, it wasn't really, but for me it was. Because every time Dan says, thanks, Mrs. C, <laughs> I keep thinking, that's Mrs. Cunningham. Well, there you go. It's the Fonz. Hey, Mrs. C. Mrs. C, what's up? I love it. Abra's parents notice that there's a a period of her life when she talks about herself in the third person, and they call it her Ricky Henderson phase, which I just love because King's a baseball fan, and Ricky Henderson is one of my favorite baseball players because Ricky Henderson talked about Ricky Henderson like this. Ricky Henderson's going to steal a base tonight. Ricky Henderson's the greatest that lived of all time, so I just love that that aspect of it. I also thought it was interesting, you had mentioned how the True Not calls the regular people rubes, mm -hmm. and they have a a phrase for a truly big rube disaster, like 9-11 or a hurricane that goes through, and they call it the seventh wave. I don't know what the other six waves are, but this also reminded me that there's a sting song called Love is the Seventh Wave. Ah. Sort of a counterintuitive feast for sting. The seventh wave is love, but for the true not, the seventh wave is a truly big rube disaster. So, well, maybe they feel the same way during their seventh wave that Sting feels in his seventh wave. They, they both like it a lot, I suppose. Yeah. When Dan finally admits he's an alcoholic, he says he's sick and tired of being sick and tired, which is also a quote that Molly Shannon says in Wet Hot American Summer. And I'll put a link to that in there too. And it's something my wife and I say all the time. Molly Shannon's character is going through a divorce and she's sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's supposed to be very uh, meaningful in Dr. Sleep, but it's very funny in Wet Hot American Summer. And on that note, I'm going to hand it over to you for Other Worlds Than These. Sean, I have recently started watching this show Starstruck on HBO Max. Mm. I've only watched the first three episodes. There are two seasons, and they're only six episodes each, and I believe it's been renewed for a third season, so it's, it's worth tuning in for. It's about a young woman who is from New Zealand and lives in London, and she's just, you know, average person, like late 20s accidentally hooks up with a movie star doesn't know he's a movie star until the next day and then they kind of become friends and they really hit it off and it's so obvious that they are a good match for each other but because they come from totally different worlds mm. that keeps getting in the way that is the the essence of the drama of the show but it's a comedy 
and it's fun and it also stars and was created by Rose Matafeo, who I discovered by watching Taskmaster, which was another of my previous other worlds than these. She's a New Zealand comedian who lives in London or somewhere in England, if not London. So this show is kind of sort of autobiographical to some degree. I don't know that she's like, you know, a regular person anymore, but <laughs> maybe she knows a little bit about both sides of that dividing line now. Yeah. And the show is very funny. It's really smartly written. I suppose gives me a old uh, fogey like me a little bit of insight into what the kids are doing these days. That's another one I'll have to add to my list. And again, HBO Max, are you listening? Every week, it seems like we're promoting one of your shows. A lot of great content on that network. Jay, you know that I read a lot of John D. McDonald, and I recently finished his book, The Executioners, which has also been published as Cape Fear because it was made into two movies, one in 1962 and then another in 1992 with Robert De Niro. So I read The Executioners, and then I watched the 1962 film Cape Fear with Robert Mitchum as Max Cady, the uh, bad guy, and then Gregory Peck in Stop Me If You've Heard This Before as an upright lawyer who who wants to do right by his family. Poor guy got typecast. It's interesting because the book's good, but I have to say the movies might be better. I haven't seen the 1992 one for a bit. But this 1962 one with Robert Mitchum is just fantastic. He's got this way about him that is utterly sinister, and yet he has a charisma while he's on on screen. And the way he plays it is he's not doing anything wrong that you could get him for, but that undercurrent there is is deep. I guess the most interesting thing is that the book does not have any of the scenes on the houseboat that are in both movies and then famously parodied in The Simpsons. It actually adds a lot and makes it, I think, better. The menace, because of the way that Max Cady threatens Gregory Peck's daughter, is also much better than it is in the book. So while I admire the book, I have to say that the the movie's probably better. It's a great neo-noir, black and white. It's, at one point, I think, pitched to Alfred Hitchcock, and it uses a lot of his directorial techniques. And then also has a score by Bernard Herrmann, who did the score for Psycho and worked with Hitchcock a lot. So a lot going for it. It's on a number of different streaming services, the 1962 version. I think the 1992 version is only on Showtime right now, so you have to have a subscription for that. But Cape Fear is worth watching. I have only seen the one with De Niro and, of course, the Simpsons parody, which is just like the one for The Shining, just perfection spot on sideshow bob versus bart anytime you got sideshow bob and and versus bart it's going to be great this was this is just pure gold pure gold pure gold jerry all right that's all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks jay thank you links to all of our social media are available in the show notes check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com if you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Dr. Sleep, Part 2, Empty Devils. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. 
I don't have a drink, so hopefully this will go okay. <laughs> what? Go get some drink. I don't know why that is. It's going to be too much work to get it. I don't want to waste another three minutes. You're going <laughs> to... I'll be fine. But I've got you're going to start lozenge. coughing and... I've got lozenges. I'll uh, be fine. If you start coughing too much, I'm going to... Force stop. me to? I'm going to force you. Okay. Dan Torrance finds himself in Frasier. Oh, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. I have no idea what that means at all. That's the theme song for Frasier. No, but what does toss salad and scrambled eggs mean? Oh, I have no idea. It's just like random words. Yeah. Is that the point? I don't know. Anyway. Well, maybe I seem a bit confused, but maybe <laughs> I've got you pegged. But I just don't know what to do with those toss salads and scrambled eggs. They're calling again. Do, do, 